Okay. I got tons of extra rabbit trails we can go down, but if you got any questions, we can throw it out. Don. Uh, we've talked together. Um, I seem like I, you've had some uh, hesitation or pushback or whatever on the saying that all truth is God's truth. Yes. That was that, so. If I was to go further into this, the 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 mantra. Let me let me let me frame this a little more more classically. Those that want to uh, let me back up a step for the framing. I want to make a fair framing. I don't like straw men. Um, so there is a Christian integrationist position that argues: Why not take the truth of God's word and the best truth we've discovered and pop psychology, in medicine, in, in science, in, in all the fields. And just as the Israelites spoiled the Egyptians, took spoils them as they left, why not take the best? All truth is God's truth after all. And then wouldn't we have the strongest counseling hermeneutic, the strongest approach to everything if we combined it all? All truth is God's truth. That's, that's the argument. And I grant there can be truth out there in those fields. I don't challenge that. I am not saying Freud got everything wrong, Skinner got everything wrong, Jung got everything wrong. I'm not saying that at all. Um, the counterpoint to the claim all truth is God's truth is all lies are Satan's lies, and how do you intend to separate them apart? Where truth claims line up with Scripture, we can say that's true. But take Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Is that true? Makes sense. But is it true? How would you know? On what basis would you say it's true or false? It makes sense, and there seems to be some practical use. If you're not full of Maslow's hierarchy, he's the guy with the dogs and the bells. Um, the basic notion that humans have this hierarchy of needs, and once they settle a, a prime need, then the next need comes in. People who are starving aren't worried about the taste of the food, but once you're full, you, it, there's a certain sense. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm saying, how would you intend to separate truth from error outside of the Bible? And we have no sure means of doing that. So yes, all truth is God's truth, and all lies are Satan's lies. And we're warned, I didn't cite this, but Proverbs, there's actually a proverb that occurs two times in the Proverbs. Hold on. Um, Proverbs uh, 14.12 and 16.25 are identical. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Which means something can make perfectly good sense to me and be dead wrong. It's a guard that just because something makes sense to me, just because something like, ah, that works, I like it, it might be true or it might be the end of death. And when you're dealing with truth claims and, and foundations for truth, if I can grossly oversimplify, you're dealing with about three or four possible bases. This is the, the philosophical category of epistemology, which is origins, foundations of truth. How do, you, how do you know what you know? What types of claims or what types of evidence does a claim require for you to accept it as true? That would be your epistemology. Um, you, don't worry about the term. That's what we're talking about. And so if I could broadly put it into brushstrokes, you're going to have common sense and reason. This would be our founding fathers. So Jefferson's Bible is reason. Common sense to him is his ultimate authority, and he would cut out of the Bible everything that didn't make sense to him. Think of Spock from Star Trek, just logic. And so if you could explain it and that makes sense, well, then I'll accept it as true. And if it doesn't make sense, then I'm not going to accept it as true. So, so Jefferson couldn't make sense of the Trinity, so out it went, and on and on and on and on. So one possible basis of truth is it's got to make sense. And yet, even as we're reading Habakkuk, don't we see that on many occasions, what God does in his ways confound people. Not that God is irrational, but that on first hearing, God's ways and his thoughts do not always immediately to us go, ah, oh, yes, that makes sense. I mean, just take the angelic world. Why was an angel delayed to show up to Daniel? Because he got in a month-long wrestling match with the prince of the power of Persia. I wouldn't have guessed that. Right? And so I go, okay. <laughs> um, he's God. His ways are not my ways. Which is not to say God doesn't want us to use our reason, but all the conclusions we come to with logic hold with a loose hand. Perhaps. Perhaps. 
and be ready that maybe we could be wrong. There are things we're not taking into account. There's things we have not considered. There, there are factors in play we know not of. And so by all means, use your logic and use your reason. But if you're going to set logic and reason as your highest standard, you're an idolater because you will ultimately demand God make sense to you before you accept him. But that's this is where a lot of uh, a liberal stuff comes in. Like, I need to know why God would require a blood sacrifice. Doesn't make any sense to me. And the clear challenge is, until God can explain himself in a reasonable way, I won't believe it. Okay, you've got a different God, and it's your own sense of reason and knowledge. Microphone to this. Your, what's your name, sir? I. Uh, my name is Ben. Ben! You could, you, you could tell me. Thank you, though. He, she's got your back. Okay. Well, this, this question of what is truth is the mm -hmm. question Pilate asked of Jesus mm -hmm. because Pilate wanted things to make sense in his mind before he would accept what Jesus claimed would be true. Right. Yeah, no, Pilate's the first postmodern, right? What is truth? And truth incarnate is standing in front of him. The irony is dripping. You know what irony is? It's the opposite of wrinkly. And so... <laughs> Sorry, sorry. Okay, you want to give Bennett the microphone? We got. A, I got more to go on this, but Bennett, if if it's on track, let's let's do this. Sure. All right. Habakkuk. What? It's on about Habakkuk. I can't finish. Can we get to that in just a moment? I want to cover. Hold hold the mic. Let me let me go. On. So so you've got logic as one basis, and I'm just going to use really broad categories, and then you've got um, uh, pragmatism. You got the pragmatism, especially the Scottish pragmatists in like the 19th century. And here is, who cares if it makes sense? Can it be shown to work? Can it be shown to work? I don't care how it works. Does the medicine make the fever go down? If it does, we're going to use it. Is, does, this, does this procedure, does this treatment, does this counsel produce the desired results? Does it work? Pragmatism. So now you, what you get actually in postmodern philosophy is more pragmatic because there's a suspicion to truth claims. There's a suspicion to meta-narratives, which is worldview stuff. But if it works and it can be shown to work, well, then we'll do that. The, the problem with pragmatism is the problem of the inductive chicken. A professor of mine gave this example. See, pragmatism, the danger with pragmatism it's weakness. And these are all useful things. They're good servants. They're good handmaids. They make terrible, terrible kings. Is that we, we pragmatically figure things out through observation. It's, it's the scientific method of induction. You, you notice repeated patterns and you draw inferences. From those inferences, you come up with theories. From those theories, you come up with proposals and then you get to laws. So, so Newton's theory of gravity is you drop enough things, you observe things drop enough, eventually you're going to come up with a postulate. I guess things get attracted to the earth, right? And that's the scientific method induction. The problem is, how do you know if you've seen a large enough sample size? So my professor gave us the example of the inductive chicken. There was a scientific chicken in a chicken coop, and he was conducting an experiment. And he noticed that every day, a hand, large hand, entered the chicken coop and would deposit food and water for him. And he, he, he kept a journal. And for like four months, on time, rain or shine, snow or heat, that hand showed up giving food. The chicken then drew its conclusion, its theory. I theorize this hand exists solely for my good and my well-being. Until the day the hand reached in, grabbed it by its neck, and snapped its neck. It didn't have a large enough sample size. That's, that's the, the, pro, the weakness of induction. The danger with induction is we simply don't know if we've gotten a large enough sample size of data to start drawing conclusions, right? That's, again, not, not dismissing the inductive principle, rather demonstrating its weakness or its limitations. That, that induction can be very useful. Noticing how things work, noticing patterns, and yet we may learn, uh-oh, we hadn't taken enough into consideration. So you've got reason and logic, you've got, you got pragmatism and induction. The other one that our, our, our cultures loves now is you are a source of truth. This is all of that follow your heart, be true to yourself, follow your feelings nonsense. And, and, and the reason I say it's nonsense is if, if, if some people are jerks. They ought not to follow their hearts. <laughs> right? My heart wants to do evil continually. And, and this notion that somehow you and I are, are just sources of truth, and that it's really holding us back. But this is, this is interesting. The Enlightenment philosophers, guys like Rousseau, this was their foundation. Rousseau thought that the innate natural man was pure, the noble savage, and that society 
imposes restrictions to the social contract, corrupting and twisting so that you aren't the real and authentic you. And if you could just be freed from those restrictions. And then Freud comes on and says sexual complexes and things like that. That's what's restricting you. And society is a, an exchange of security for restrictions. And if there's this, again, this notion that if you could just have these restrictions released and just get the inner core you out, we'd all be good and healthy and great. And the Bible says whoever trusts in his own heart is stupid. And I've had enough kids to know they come hardwired, hardwired with rebellion, deception, and wickedness. No one, no one had to teach my kids to look to see if I was looking before they touched something we're supposed to touch. They, they figured that one out on their own. Uh, but, but so much of today, it's, it's this like lie we want to believe. What we want to believe is we're wonderful. And the problem with why we're not behaving wonderfully is something outside of us. And it's not my fault. I mean, we get, get how seductive that claim is. You are wonderful. You are fabulous. And what's wrong with you is not you, but things outside of you corrupting you. That'll, that'll sell, man. You can sell books and get on talk shows. No problem with that. It doesn't. I mean, it's the stupidest because if you examine it, I mean, was not Charles Manson being the authentic Charles Manson? Was Adolf Hitler not being the authentic Adolf Hitler? Anyway, um, so so in broad brushstrokes, epistemological, you've got, you can use logic and reason, which are good tools. You've got um, science and the demonstration um, repeated demonstrations of things working and pragmatic. Those can be useful. Those are good things. But they lack the certainty of scripture that that's so that so this ultimately all the way goes back to don's question is all truth god's truth and that's what i'm saying when you're dealing with science when you're dealing with pragmatism when you're dealing with philosophy when you're dealing with science even with science things can change new new discoveries can alter present postulates and theories there are no new discoveries that can alter god's word and so I mean, I've lived long enough to have eggs be bad for me, then eggs be good for me. Margarine was good, now margarine's bad. Like, you know, and it's not suggesting people are trying to be corrupt. It's just we're figuring some stuff out. And clearly we make some mistakes along the way. And so that's all I'm saying. I'm not saying, to, to state it again as simply as I can, science and psychology, they can come up with useful true things that we may find out in eternity were true. But they lack the certainty. And quite often we think something's true only to learn 10 years later, no, that was a bad idea. And that's where I'm saying it's lowercase t truth. It's, it, it can be useful. And we should, we sh I'm fine with cautiously, um, when we start with scripture and we want to take something that seems helpful and bring it in, okay, okay. But so often, and it shows up in marriage books, it shows up in other places, that the, the it's not about, let's, you can, you can, okay, let me back up. I'm babbling. I can tell very quickly whether a book or an author truly thinks the answers we need is in here, or if they know because they're a Christian, whatever, they need to cite some Bible verses. But really, the discovery is something we discovered over here when you're dealing with, with ethical spiritual issues. And that's backwards. It, it clearly betrays that you aren't confident the answers we need are here. And so I'm fine with bringing some extra things in if, if it helps, but our approach should start with the belief, the conviction, just, just what Paul says. I'm with scripture, I am competent for every good work. Now that doesn't mean I don't have to do work. That's the other problem. People who haven't been studying their Bibles, people who haven't been reading their Bibles are ill-equipped. And rather than humbling themselves and saying, I need help, they go to something simpler and easier. Because just look back at chapter in, in 2 Timothy to chapter 2, right? Where he says, study to show yourself approved? Or is that in 1 Timothy? Is that 1 Timothy? 2 Timothy 2.15. Thank you. Do your best to present yourself a worker as one approved, who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Well, by clear implication, if you haven't been working hard, if you haven't been doing your best, you may have occasion for shame. It might be right and fitting for you to feel ashamed of your inability to handle the word of truth. People don't like shame, generally. So when you've got people who haven't been doing the work and then all of a sudden they need help, sometimes they'll humble themselves and be like, yeah, I should have been reading and studying this, but I, I, I didn't and I, help. Or you just go someplace else because humbling yourself is hard. Um, but so it's not a promise that you can just open the Bible up and ta-da, I can solution my problem. You, you got to do hard work with it. But 
the Bible is claiming if you'll do the hard work, everything you need for everything for life and godliness and for every good work is here. There is no need of a supplement. It is sufficient and it is certain. That, that's, the, that's, I've done a long talking, but where'd, where'd Don go? There you are. Don, so, so that's, that's my response to all truth is God's truth. <laughs> Bennett about Habakkuk, yes. I will talk, I'm not, I'm not totally following, I'll talk with you afterwards, we can talk about this, but it's a little off topic right now, so I'm going to, oh no, no, you're fine, no, you're fine, you're, no, no, I got you, I'll, we'll talk afterwards, it's cool, it's cool, I want to get back to, I want to see if Don has any feedback on your question, is all truth, God's truth, I don't want to straw man the position, but that would that'd be my response, is recognizing the limitations of our knowledge, we, we simply can't claim Anything is true along. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Any, any questions further pressing on the sufficiency issue? Deb, microphone. Oh, no, no, microphone, 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 microphone. Oh, um, it's in the notes. Proverbs um, 1412 and 1625. 1412 and 1625. Um, it, yeah. And, and by virtue, and let me make another point. Whatever you are going to choose to be your authority of its of necessity must be your starting point. Um, it's going to be an axiomatic. If you believe logic is your highest authority, you're going to have to start there. You don't arrive there. Um, what I mean is other, otherwise you have to give reasons for why reason is the highest authority. It's circular. What, what I'm, what I'm saying is I'm arguing I'm arguing the Bible claims, and I believe, the Bible is the highest, God's word is the highest source of authority we have. It trumps everything else. And you say, okay, why do you believe that? Because to me, it's self-evident. The Spirit testifies to it, and it is. And you say, well, that's circular. I'm like, okay, so is every other foundation of thought. Give me your reasons for why reason is the highest authority. Give me your evidence for why evidence is the most weighty. Whatever, whatever is your highest authority can't appeal to something else to put it in position or the thing you appeal to as more authority. If I'm going to give you 27 archaeological reasons why the Bible is the word of God, archaeology has more authority than scripture. If I'm going to give you 27 miracles that testify to the Bible as God's word, and that's the reason you accept the Bible as God's word, those miracles have more authority than scripture. If I give you 27 logical arguments for why the Bible is the word of God and should be trusted, logical of more, whatever you appeal to, to put your, your foundation of knowledge in place must have more authority than that thing. So whatever your greatest authority in your thinking is, is going to be your starting point. Everybody reasons in circles in that sense. Everyone has a starting point of authority that they did not arrive at. They started from. And so I'm quite comfortable saying I'm starting from scripture. I don't arrive at scripture. I'm starting there. And everyone else does too. Does that, that may be a complicated concept. Does that make any sense? I, what I'm trying to say is don't be embarrassed of the charge that you're just, just, just circular. You believe the Bible's the word of God because it says it's the word of God. Yeah, and you believe reason because you got reasons for reason. And you got evidences for evidences. We all do it. <laughs> we all do it. Does that make, and that's, Dave, you got a question in the back? Yeah. I just, oh, no, no, microphone. I'm agreeing. My, my, microphone. I want, I want people to hear you agree with me for posterity. <laughs> Now agree. Begin agreeing. Yeah, yeah I, I was reading where they use a, a, a valid use of circular reasoning is used in a court of law all the time. It's yeah. evidence or circular. I right. mean, uh, circumstantial evidence at best, but yeah. it's valid, it's useful, yeah. and it's powerful. So, yeah. 
No, no. All of us at our foundational levels, we start with assumptions. You can't reason yourself into accepting reason as useful. You have to start with it. No one can give you... No one can reason themselves into reason or give them evidence into evidence. And so... The, the charge that we are circular in our thinking is is a straw man because foundationally so is everyone else the real question is whose starting points comport with and can account for the reality in the world around us the, the real the real challenge is okay since all of our starting points are are self-attesting they're axioms you didn't arrive at them whose starting points can best account for everything whose starting points actually work and make sense of the world you've got to do an internal critique of someone else's view so when i talk to the atheist my challenge will be okay given your starting points that all there is ultimately in the universe is time chance and matter and energy that's that's the starting blocks of everything that's your starting point how with only time chance matter and energy do you end up with values logic reason transcendental truths how, how, how does that how does your starting assumptions account for and make sense of all that and i would argue they can't right and i'd say i think i can and but that's that's the type of the type of conversation you have to have with people with differing worldviews is is to challenge them on the inner consistency of what they're saying what they're doing um Okay, we're off. We're off in the weeds here. Yes. Um, so this is a little bit of a tangent on the the question of uh, all truth is God's truth. Yeah. <clears throat> um, there are other good things like love and peace and beauty. Do you ever hear people make those statements? All beauty is God's beauty. All love is God's love. Those types of things. I just I've heard people say it's, if it's love, it's of God. Yeah. Um, but that's, I've most often heard, used in defense of gay marriage. Which is where, again, the, the world loves the concept of love. I mean, people talk about you got to be loving. The question is, what application of love, right? Um, he who hates his child withholds discipline. But I know a ton of people who, in the name of love, hate their kids. If, if I'm going to take, no, if I'm going to take God of this word. In other words, what love is, is not, the, the assumption is, I'm going to know love when I see it. I, I recognize love, and I know love when I see it. That is not the Bible's assumption. The Bible's assumption is you need God to tell you what love is. And there are going to be applications of, does the Father perfectly love the Son? Did the Father crush him on a cross? Okay, then maybe love is a little more complex than we want to think it is. You know? and, and so we certainly can recognize aspects of love. We can see heroism and valor, a soldier laying down his life for his, his comrades, a firefighter risking his life to save someone. We can see aspects of love there. Our culture doesn't see any love in disagreeing with someone. I, I'd argue it's the most loving thing you can do if someone's engaged in self-destructive behavior to try to lovingly warn them. And our culture says that's hatred, right? So even love, we need to be told what it is in all of its instances and in all of its applications. I got in the discussion with my sisters. We're talking about parenting. Like, yeah, you got to love your kids. I'm like, yeah, but what type of love? The love of correction, the love of discipline, the love of rebuke, the love of long suffering, the love of, of praise. There's so many ways I can love my kids, right? Um, and we all agree love is important. The question is, what application of love what what presentation of love it's going to differ um in in context so yeah people people will use that all the time beauty is god if it's beautiful that's from god in one sense sure as c.s lewis said satan can't create any pleasures he can only pervert ones he hasn't been able to create a single pleasure he can only pervert it um but given how deceptive and subtle he can be we got to be really careful and, and again, get back to there's a way that seems right to a man and this end is death. Or Proverbs 3, uh, 5, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. It doesn't say don't use your understanding. Don't lean on it. Don't let your understanding bear weight it was never meant to bear, right? Um, don't, don't stake eternity on your understanding. Let it be a servant and not a master. You know what I mean? There's a... Are you, were you going further with that, or am I just you get me no, on? I, I just wanted to hear you talk about it. Okay. I, I mean, I, I've well because it gets thrown around in those same. I mean, as as you're listening to this, you know, like all oh, truth is God's truth. You'll hear these other sort of enlightened sounding things, yeah. and it's like, well, yeah, well, you know, God, like you said, you know, Satan doesn't create pleasures, so it's sort of an easy 
path to slide down to, well, all good things are God's good things. Well, if we were all good all the time, that might be true. But, right. <laughs> you know, when the devil gets his deceptions in there, then uh, those things, you got to watch out for that. So it, it's it's worldly, tends to be kind of a worldly thing that sounds kind of spiritually and, and, uh, and there's pitfalls there, obviously. Yeah. Well, and it's the, it's the danger. So often when people disagree with the Bible, when I'm dealing with more liberal Christians, more mainline Christians, the starting point is, well, I know this is wrong. How'd you know that? I mean, so they read about like, you know, the, the war in the Old Testament, Israel's war and, and wiping out the, the Amalekites keep coming up. It's just total war. I know that's wrong. Really? How? You know what I mean? You're starting with truth claims outside of scripture instead of letting God tell you what's right or what's wrong. Um, and, and ultimately it's coming, I know I made this point quickly in, in the sermon, but I, I really mean this, that the test of your view of the authority of scripture is only seen in those passages you have a hard time with. Nobody, no, nobody, even in our culture, they love, what's, what's the most common verse quoted in our culture? Judge, no, they love that. And they love turn the other cheek. I mean, I'll talk, like I said, Bennett, let, let's talk afterwards. I'm going to stay up. They, they, they love the Sermon on the Mount. They love those things. It takes, and it doesn't indicate that the, quoting those passages indicates zero submission to God's word because they're only agreeing with the things they already thought. The real test of authority, the real test of who's boss is when you encounter something in scripture you don't like. Let me tell you a story. I won't reveal the name of the person so that I don't embarrass them. But this is one of the most impressive things that ever I've ever seen, just in talking about submission and authority. There was a, a, a young woman who was coming over to her house who's a Simpson student who wanted to be a pastor. And she'd encountered somebody from our church who said, you can't be a pastor. And then this person's own words were as a truth bomb. And then when this young woman, this young lady said, what? He's like, ah, I talked to the kidders. So we get an angry, upset young young woman coming to our house. And so we welcomed her in. And uh, she said, I was talking to so-and-so, and, -so, and um, they told me I can't be a pastor. I said, okay. And so I said, look, why don't we do this? I, I think there are some passages that I think say that, but what I care is what you think, and I, and I care about your... The question you got to resolve even before we go there that I, you don't need to answer me, but I want you to think through is if, if you became convinced the Bible said that, what would you do? Um, because it's dangerous to study the Bible when you're really holding it hostage. Are you saying, the question would be simply, if you became convinced, if you read and you agreed, yeah, that's what that says, what are you going to do? Will you then say, I won't do it till God explains it to me? Or would that be enough? Like that's, that's the challenge you got to do. So I, so I gave her two or three passages to read. I gave her 1 Timothy 2, some of the passages. And she came back to Serena's in my house about a week later. She came in and she looked unhappy. I said, so did you read those passages? Yeah, I read those passages. What do you think? She says, I can't be a pastor. And I said, what do you think of that? She says, I hate it. I said, well, what are you going to do? She's like, well, I can't be a pastor, obviously. Uh, no, but that submission, it still seemed ugly to her. Now, in God's grace, in very short time, she came to see, I believe, the beauty in this and, and the goodness in this. But that is one of the clearest indications that you respect the authority of Scripture. I hate it. It seems ugly to me. I don't understand it. I don't like it, but I will submit and obey to it. That's, that's a high view of Scripture. And that's really the question. That's the test of your view of God's word. It's not the passages you put on your wall. It's the passages you hope your unbelieving neighbor at work doesn't quote and ask you about. You know the ones I'm talking about, right? Um, you're like, man, I hope they don't bring up that Amalekites one. You know, And that's, that's going to be the test. Or the passages that tell you you can't do the thing you really want to do, that you think is perfectly reasonable. You know? That's, that's the test, is when you think you, everything in you would say, go left, and God's word says, go right. What do you, what do, you do then? That, that's the test. The test isn't the passages you like. Um, that's the test. So, um, okay. Lee had a hand up. Well, 
Well, uh, just leapfrogging off of the other uh, gentleman's comment, my my thought is is definitions. You have to yeah. go to, once again, you're going to have to go to that base place, like love. What is love? Oh, it's those happy feelings in the hearts and the flowers, blah, blah. No, it's doing the hard things on behalf of someone else. Yeah. And so... Yeah. And even beauty. Oh my gosh, what is called beauty today is yeah. so sad and yeah. fills you with grief if you if you really realize what God has created that is beautiful. Yeah. So once again, like you said, you've got to go to the base place to jump off before you can start making any comments about God's relationship to love, beauty, or truth. Yeah. That uh, once again, you have to start at a, a ground zero before you can go further. Absolutely. Absolutely. Jeremy. Don's talking, so we, we'll handle it. <laughs> <laughs> My comment was just simply about, uh, you mentioned in the sermon about um, when people fall away, there's typically a an initial point a disagreement on one thing or a, ch a changed belief about one thing yeah. and it just kind of snowballs down the hill i, I have several uh, people in my life who used to be strong profession christians who are just living horrible lives and who have gone through the you were talking about deconstruction and and um it all starts with one thing i have a friend who i went to school with at the christian school that i went to um, who is now a transgender uh person who when he first told me we got together and and his whole argument was about you know how you know how um they say that there's a difference between sex and gender and um you know i just like uh, who who says that you I mean that's not <laughs> That, that's not a thing that's been true for yeah. thousands of years until the last 10 minutes. Yeah. Now it's true. Um, but it's just that one belief yeah. that that changes and, and all of a sudden your whole life is yeah. ruined or, or spiritually ruined. And that's just very interesting how that one thought or that one disagreement is what causes all of it. No, no. Today, I think probably the most common buckling is on the LGBTQ plus issue. But I, to, to prove the point, you, you, you can't compromise in one area and not have the whole house collapse. There is no church that is orthodox, conservative, holding faithfully to scripture, except the LGBTQ plus issue. That there's no such thing. The second you compromise on one issue, you've really let go of your doctrine of scripture entirely. There's no way on earth. People, when they compromise, tell themselves, we're going to be faithful to all these other areas. We're just going to bend here and it never works that way i mean there is no church that is staunchly conservative and orthodox and historically faithful except the lgbtq plus issue there's no such thing exists um because but that's for most i mean the most of the people i know who deconstructed publicly the big ones that was the issue that was josh harris i mean i used to read his books I like Derek webb who's a member of cabin's calls that's how they deconstructed uh, I'm not saying it's the only way. Certainly, persecution and suffering show up dominantly in Second Timothy as well. So I'm not. I don't want to say this is the only way, but it's a dominant theme in Second Timothy and and Paul's heart that Timothy not end up like these guys who. I mean, Demas has got to be terrifying. Let, let me just show you Demas because I can find him in my phone very very quickly. Um, I will tell you in just a moment. Go to Colossians. Okay, first let's start with 2 Timothy 4. I mean, man, Paul's final days had got to be discouraging and disillusioning. He spent his whole life serving, pouring himself into others, and all the disciples in Asia Minor backed away and disowned him. In his first trial before Caesar, no one stands with him. He's got a few people left. He's like, I sent Luke over here, and I got, you got four or five guys you can count on, but that's about it. Guys planted dozens of churches. Demas, okay, so verse 
9 and 10 of 2 Timothy 4, do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. That's apostasy, because read the verse before it. Verse 7 and 8, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all those who loved his appearing, but Demas loved something else. In the context, it's clear. This is also um, the Greek word agape, which doesn't always mean Christian supernatural love. Sometimes it means apostasy. There's a, there's a love you don't want to have. And it's a love for the world. So, so this is, but let's, let me show you Demas. Let's go to Colossians 4. Colossians 4. <sighs> Starting in, uh, oh, verse 10. As Paul's listing the people who are with him who are sending their greetings to the Colossian church. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who's called Justice. These are the men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, also struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea guy shows up in scripture giving a greeting go over to philemon philemon don't ask me which chapter because there's only one chapter philemon 24 well let's read 23 to 25 epaphras my fellow prisoner in christ jesus sends greeting to you and so do mark Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. In Scripture, Demas is cited as a fellow worker with Paul. And he loves the world and he forsakes Paul. Now, we don't know the end of Demas' story, whether the Lord restores him. But the way it's written in 2 Timothy, if that's what Demas loves and that's what Demas ultimately values, in the context of 2 Timothy, Demas is going to perish. If, if he is the Lord, the Lord's going to discipline him into repentance. But Paul has just said, the Lord gives the crown to those who love his appearing. Demas, on the other hand, he loved the world and he forsook me. So in that context, Demas is not looking good. But it's got to be such a troubling blow to, to Paul. There's a guy I went to seminary with, Daniel went to seminary with, who, who's... I don't, I don't know the details, but it's frightening. Just seeing people fall, people that you'd think would just make it faithful to them, people you never imagined would falter. Just, if anyone's going to get to the finish line, it's going to be that guy. And just seeing people crashing and burning all around us, it's, it's humbling and it's, it's, uh, it's a reminder that we, we need to hold fast to those things. God keeps us faithful through his instructions and through his warnings and through his word. And so what we're seeing this morning is this reminder. I mean, that, that charge, go back to 2 Timothy, that charge at the beginning of chapter 4, I can't imagine how you could stack much more on top of this. Like, how could you make a more solemn charge? Let's just read it. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who's to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, like, what else are you going to add on top of this? Preach the word in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. But that comes after this declaration. He's telling Timothy, continue in what you've learned. Continue in scripture. And then can, next week we'll finish the passage. And you're going to see ultimately the use of scripture. The reason why I skipped over reproof, correction, training, and righteousness is because I wanted to get to the claims all scripture and every good work. And what those four words teach, reprove, correct, train, and righteousness, 
And the corollary is down in verse two, preach, reprove, rebuke, exhort. This is what you do with scripture. This is how you make use of it. This is how it becomes, this is how it equips you so that you're ready for every good work. This is the actual practical application of scripture. We'll, we'll look at this next week. Um, but that, that's the flow of thought. I want to give you this rock solid confidence in scripture. I want you to hold to it, Paul's telling Timothy. And based on that, I want you to use it. I want you to get out there and like, I'm not sure what he means by in season or out of season, but here's a fair, I think, observation. We're either in season or out. There's no third option. So it must mean all the time in season and out of season, because it's either in season or out of season. Pretty sure that's analogically true. Um, so yeah, it's that, that's it. I mean, we, we had that carved in stone at the master's seminary that preached the word bit, but it's built upon 16 and 17 and 16 and 17 are further unpacking 14. As for you continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed. And then there's a restatement of what that is. And then there's a restatement of what he's to do. He's to continue teaching, preaching, rebuking, exhorting, holding fast to scripture. Um, okay. Anything else? Zach. Uh, maybe you said this earlier, but just uh, to make sure I understand it correctly mm. with... Um, when you're talking about like you know archaeological things and logic mm -hmm. and things like that it's okay to use those mm -hmm. as long as those aren't the reason like because of these that's why you should believe the bible yeah. it's more like the bible's true and if you don't think so and archaeology is the reason let me show you actually archaeology does support the bible or if you yes. think the bible isn't logical like actually i think it is and here's yeah. why and, no that, that's fan let me excellent point let me let me press that i think archaeology and scientific proofs and rational proofs are great to encourage our faith but um they they don't create faith they can strengthen faith and and that's why the absence of those for periods so for a long time the archaeological community said there were no hittites there are no hittites they're an invention of the bible where are the hittites we're not finding any evidence of the hittites where are the hittites the bible's wrong and then they found the hittites then they did the same thing about King David. King David's like a King Arthur myth. There's no King David. There's no evidence of King David until they find a Philistine war memorial commemorating a battle with King David. So because God's word is true, I fully would expect reality to comport with it. And I wouldn't be at all surprised if there's some lag time where what we think we understand what reality needs to catch up with reality. And so the question is, does the absence for however long it took until they found the war memorial with King David, did that really shake you up? Or was it like, no, it's true. It doesn't depend upon archaeological truth to be true. I do believe the archaeology properly understood, properly interpreted will confirm the Bible, but that's saying a lot. Um, the same thing's true with all the other evidences that we can use to, to, to demonstrate and to strengthen our faith. But, but at the end of the day, by the way, I'm going to make a, a book recommendation for you. If this is a topic you're interested in, the best book on the topic I have read, and it was thoroughly, thoroughly a blessing, John Piper's A Peculiar Glory. And in that book, he's wrestling with the question, um, can uneducated, by educated, I mean like college-level educated people, can uneducated people have a valid, God-honoring basis for believing the Bible is the Word of God? Or can only people who've studied Greek and have studied history and have studied logic and, the, and, and who have studied in the academy, can only those people have a grounded basis? And, and he uses this as an example, Jonathan Edwards, who was one of the first, if not the first, presidents at Princeton. Um, very educated man. But he got kicked out of his church over, the, over some controversies of him dealing with sin in the body there's kids passing around there's the bad book controversy and he was trying to shut that down and the parents didn't like it and eventually he has to he basically serves as a missionary to the indians i think it was the susquehanna could be wrong and he has to minister to these people people who you can barely communicate with and and the question is can edwards give those people offer them a valid basis for receiving the bible as the word of god and the danger is two dangers on the one hand you could say just believe you got to believe something it's called fideism blind faith you've got to believe something 
I don't think that honors God. Because if you were, use the illustration Piper uses, if a stranger runs into you in, in, the, in the street and he hands you a bag with $50,000 of money in the deposit slip and says, please, 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 I, I need you to go to deposit this for me. And I'm in a rush. I got my, my wife's in the hospital. I got to go. Please, will you deposit it for me? Here's the information. And you say, why on earth would you trust me? Which of these two answers honors you more? Answer number one. I don't really trust you. I just have to trust somebody and you're as good as anybody to trust. So I guess I'll have to trust you. Or I know we don't know each other, but I know many people who know you and they speak so highly of you. I thought if there's anyone I can trust, it's you. Which one of those answers gives you more honor? Speaks more highly of you. Likewise, when you come to God's word, why do I trust God's word? Well, I got to trust something. Or because the God who made this word is true and trustworthy and dependable, and I can count on what he says. Obviously, that second one gives God more honor. So, so blind faith, fideism, is not something we want to go to. The Bible does not commend or argue for or, or speak in any favorable way of blind faith. Just no reason at all. Just believe something. That's, that's out. But the other danger is, and I love Piper for saying this, the danger is that the, the academics, the educated, the people who can read Greek, the people who can deal with the historical backgrounds, they become, here's Piper's term, love this, a mediating priestly class who in essence say, trust me, I've done the homework. It all adds up. And your tr faith in God's word is basically your faith in me. If I, if th I, this is the wrong approach, totally wrong approach, but it would look like something like, trust me, guys, I've, took four, I've taken four years of Greek, I've read the historical backgrounds, I've seen the archaeology, and I'm telling you it all adds up. Trust me, it all makes sense. And I can point you to other guys who can testify to the same thing. And I become a mediator, a go-between. And on my, this is, this is, we're back to Catholicism again now, where the priest represents you. So, so the question then is, can we have a faith in God's word that has a foundation that uneducated in, in Native Americans can have? Is there any basis you can give them? You can't make the historical argument. In, in Edward's day, the primary argument for inerrancy was the historical argument. You'd, you'd give a course of, of, of the history of the world, then you show all the things the Bible confirms, and all the times archaeology confirmed it was a cumulative case. It would have taken Edwards about eight years to make that argument with the Indians, because he'd first have to train them in regards to world history, and then how the Bible worked. And, and so Piper, and I'll, I'll end with this, the book's fantastic. You can get it on Audible, you can uh, read it, it, peculiar glory. The, the Reformation, historic Christianity has held that God's word is self-authenticating. When he comes, Jesus says, he'll convict the world of, of truth, righteousness, and judgment. And the spirit and the spirit alone testifies to us that God's word is God's word. It's partly what I'm saying. It's not a circular argument to say the Bible just proves itself to be glorious. And Piper makes the point that this is precisely how the Bible says we know about other things about God. According to Romans 1, how does every single human being know about God's existence? For since the creation of the world, his divine power has been clearly perceived throughout the created order so that they are without excuse. They saw his glory in creation. Psalm 19, right? Dan today pours forth speech. The heavens declare the glory of God. So God says every human being on planet earth is accountable for the knowledge of God because they see the evidence of God's glory all around them. Everyone. According to 2 Corinthians 4, how is it you come to believe the gospel message is true? 2 Corinthians 4, in the, even if our gospel is perishing, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the eyes of unbelievers from seeing the light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're blinded from seeing glory. And then he says, but what we, what we preach is not ourselves, but Christ crucified. And God, who has caused light to shine out of darkness, has caused the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, to shine in our hearts. How did you come to believe and put your trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ, you saw it as beautiful and glorious. The veil was removed. The lights went on. You saw glory. So how do you know God exists? You see his glory in nature. How do you come to believe the gospel is true? You see it as glorious. And Piper's saying, and I'm arguing the same thing is true with how you come to believe the Bible is God's word. It has a peculiar glory. Excellent, encouraging book. I, I commend it to you. And unlike most of his other books, most of Piper's books are four chapters on Christian hedonism, and then I'm going to apply it to marriage or finances or whatever. This is really uh, an excellent, I was greatly, greatly um, encouraged by it. Uh, it. Because the argument, if, if that's true, then the, the, 
the doctor, the person with a doctorate has no advantage over the, the middle school kid. Um, I mean, this is partly why the Reformation in, in emphasized reading. The person who can't read has a tremendous disadvantage over the person who can read. But if, if God's spirit and God's word testifies to his word, then it, it's not a matter of how smart you are. It's not a matter of how many degrees you have. Um, it's, it's seeing the glory of God in his word that ultimately convinces us it is God's word. Um, now, I certainly think all the logic and all the evidence, I, I, I love them. I love stacking them up, and I love encouraging my faith. And here's another time where history confirms the Bible. But at the end of the day, this is God's word because it's God's word. That sounds stupid. The, the, we did a, if you want to check on this, we did a, a series on inspiration and inerrancy. You can look it up in our sermon archive. And I think the first and second, the second message in particular, why we believe the Bible is the word of God. And I had, I think, five reasons, and I said the, only the first two count. <laughs> no, the first, here, here they are. The first reason why we accept the Bible is the word of God, because the Holy Spirit testifies to it. And I, and I did a pretty cheesy, um, but I, simple, but I think helpful demonstration of what I mean. Um, I took the last sermon Gary Crandall had ever taught, and I'd just taken over the pulpit. I think it was like, you know, probably 10, 12 years ago. And um, Gary had just left for Guam, and I, pr I took a CD player up on the platform, and I hit play, and I didn't tell people who it was, and I let it play for about 15 seconds, and I stopped it, and I turned around and said, okay, who, who are we listening to? And this is a church that had listened to Gary Crandall preach for five years. I mean, be the same. I didn't want to pick someone divisive. I could have put President Obama at the time on. We'd all recognize his voice, but you'd have people booing, you know, whatever. So I didn't want someone divisive, I, but I want someone we'd all recognize, you know. And so that's Gary Crandall. I said, well, how do you know? I recognize his voice. Okay. If God talked the universe into being and God, the universe is radiating his glory, I think it's fair to say we're hearing the same glory and the same voice that I hear and see around me in the world is the same glory and voice I hear when I read this. I recognize the voice. Jesus, my sheep hear my voice. I, I think that's a valid, rational basis. I, I see a peculiar glory all around me in the world, in the night sky, in the stars, in the flowers, in the, the animals, in everything that testifies to the glory of its maker. And when I read this book, I hear and I see the same glory. It's the same author. It's the same speaker. That's how I know. Um, that, that ultimately, testified by the Holy Spirit, is the basis of our acceptance of God's Word. And then, I would say, that's the starting point from which all the rest of life makes sense. As I apply what I read to my marriage, to my children, to my family, to my community, everything lines up and it works. And that confirms that initial. So you don't, but initially, we're seeing a glory, a self-authenticating glory in God's word. Thank you very much. We'll finish this passage next week, hopefully. God bless.